Even if you are not professional, you will every day you will think about chess. Uh, so it's a very, uh, very nice game, I think, and it's very good for mental health. Yeah. Very good for mental health. Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties? Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal? Welcome to the Chess Feels podcast, the only chess podcast dedicated to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love. And hate. Tune in every week to join me, professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver, JJ Lang. And me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder, Julia Rios as we dive into our shared love for the game and yeah. attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessive. Yeah. Why, Why are, are we, we like this? Yeah. So should we have a little intro that we do at the beginning of every podcast? I mean... Everyone knows who we are, though. Who would be here that doesn't know why they're here, right? Literally, nobody knows who I am. Everybody knows who you are. I introduced you and you introduced me. No, I'm not giving you that power. Next idea. <laughs> no, I really do want that power, though. What's the worst I could say about you? Let's find out. Introduce me. No, you go first. And with the white pieces, <laughs> unrated from Michigan. <laughs> here don't you dare you're not on rated either julia rios soon to be phd oh my yeah. god are you gonna jinx me like that see is this really like a good intro <laughs> no it's fucking terrible do you want this at the start of every episode mine would be like this is jj i'm bad at chess but secretly i'm sick slang i just give you a new nickname every time Today, you're going to be like JJ, the weapon. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> yeah, Julia like Pon Rios. Pon. Oh, my God. Okay, I haven't used this new username because I couldn't mm -hmm. log in because I forgot to verify it in the email. But someone did ask me. No, actually, <laughs> I can't lie. They did not ask me. This was unprompted. I did tell someone if they wanted to challenge <laughs> me to, to reach me at DTF Pons, and they thought it was so funny. And I really wanted to take credit for it, but I simply could not. They were like, that's hilarious. I was like, yeah, this guy JJ's made it best. up. <laughs> I don't know him. I barely know him. Um, we, we are, are family. Um, something in there is probably like a good like attempt to have an intro that didn't work. So that's great. <laughs> no, but we're going we're gonna to workshop every it every week. Get better. Your nicknames will get oh, so yeah. cute. Did I tell you that I had a friend in high school who called me JH Against the Machine? It's really <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Weird. So you have your work cut out for you. Oh, why didn't I think of that? Damn it. That's a really good one. Yeah. I'm not I'm not great with the puns. I feel like you're really sharp. You you have some really good puns. Those are not my special. Yeah, your strengths are the the callback and like the combination and the subtle deviation. You're very form oriented. Yeah, yeah. The problem though is that I think other people don't remember all these details. So sometimes I'll like make a joke. And you just sound really weird. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, this was something that you said eight minutes ago. This was your joke. And then, um, no, I don't even try to explain myself. I usually just carry on. But in my head, like, this is not my fault. I mean, to be fair, the only reason I remember things is either to prove I'm right or to make jokes about them. Mm, that's true. That's true. That's why we are a great duo, because I have absolutely no qualms with admitting when you're right, which you frequently mm -hmm. are. Thank you for saying that. And I've been saying for months that we should start a podcast about chess and that it has to be us and it has to be about who we are and what we bring to the table talking about chess. It's been like pulling teeth right. to get Julia here. <laughs> that is wildly untrue. It was easy to get you here. It was just hard to get you to want to do the podcast because you were just like, why would anyone want to listen to us talk? You did have to convince me that anyone would want to hear my voice for more than three minutes. <laughs> but I think that there's something that we can do here that isn't, you know, just talking about chess. Because I have been teaching chess for a while and playing chess for a long time. But it's something that I like about chess is a lot more about the kind of phenomena of chess as like this obsession, this cultural thing. This thing that seems to, yes, there's so many of us who are like this and I don't know why we're like this. And you <laughs> as someone with a psychology background and career are actually well-equipped to help 
us figure out why we're like this. And I'm way more interested in talking about yes. that than like my opening repertoire. <laughs> Right. I know there there are several really great podcasts kind of covering especially the adult improvement stuff. They're they're good. They're, I don't know, I don't know about great. <laughs> they're good. Uh, I think they're spectacular. So if anyone is listening, just remember Julia is nice. JJ is terrible. But yeah, I think also that was kind of what sparked this was I've heard many podcasts. I think even your own interview with Ben Johnson on Perpetual Chess. Right. Where this idea about the psychology of chess has come up. People love that phrase. Mm. But then no one ever actually talks about the psychology of chess. So as a clinical psychologist, I thought we should actually talk about it um, rather than kind of using these hand wavy terms to say it's sort of this nebulous thing that we don't really get. <laughs> but I know that I'm bad at X, Y, Z, whatever area of chess my my timing or my confidence. And I know that feels psychological, but I don't know what that means. And I don't know how to talk about it. Yeah. I was going to ask you, first of all, besides like, oh God, here we go again. What do you think when you hear people say psychology of chess, not just what do you think psychology of chess means? Like, what do you think they're trying to get to when they're saying that they're interested right. in psychology of chess? I, I almost think it comes down to anything that is not the logic, the tactics of chess. <laughs> it's like, if I can study it, someone can put this in a video, in a book for me, and I can understand how this operates on a chessboard, then it's <laughs> chess. But as soon as it's anything else, mm. as soon as it gets into any kind of realm that is cognitive or emotional, all of a sudden it's like, well, that's the psychology of chess. And yeah, I do need to work on it. But but, but famously, no one knows where psychology is even located, like what organ <laughs> no. is responsible for that. So we should do a Twitter poll for that. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll save my more crude comments on that. For no, that. don't. Do you know like that whole like the the, the, the Chris when like Chrissy Teigen just like tweeted P is stored in the balls? That is literally the only okay, thing good. I could think of, JJ. Okay, cool. But I was like, but now I just found immature. No, this okay, is a good. real that joke. Was the I didn't thing. make okay. it up. <laughs> wow, I, I'm really glad that was actually the setup. I'm not even convinced that chess would be stored in the balls. I was gonna say a chess is like stored in like my toenails, and I'm just always clipping it off, and they're coming back. But before whatever that was happened, I like the point that you're saying of how psychology is kind of being used as this catch-all term of like obscuring what is actually there, almost like separating it from chess. And that was the point you made, like there's chess and then there's the other stuff. And like that separation also seems kind right. of artificial, right? People do this literally all the time. And especially with emotions. I think there's something about mm -hmm. emotion that people like a lot of distance right. from, especially men. But when we're talking about psychology, when we're talking about the nervous mm. system, when we're talking about what's happening in the brain, everything is interconnected. So if you think that your thoughts and your emotions are not deeply intertwined, you probably haven't done any CBT, which is fine. But it's just an interesting thing to me. I think chess kind of makes that a bigger thing where all of psychology mm. is kind of over here. But maybe even especially those emotion parts of it, which do impact our thinking, our planning, our judgment, that kind of thing. But it's also, I think, easier to say, oh, you know, I, I didn't see the tactic. Mm -hmm. Those cognitive parts of psychology, I think, are more palatable. But the emotional stuff, this is just a general effect that I see. I think that even of the people who seem to get on some level that like we are fundamentally emotional creatures. And so obviously our emotions are going to tie into any sort of more cognitive thing we're trying to do. I think people, a lot of people still view that as a weakness or something to kind of optimize away. It's like, so I understand that like emotions factor into my chest and that's what I'm trying to work on. And yeah. there's probably like ways to work on it, but I think a lot of people assume working on it is to like get the feelings out of the brain, which totally. is like such a weird goal. Yeah, I totally agree with that. There's this beautiful analogy that I use with my therapy clients sometimes, which is, you know, emotions do have a big impact and we can think of emotions as this power mm -hmm. force. And if you're, if you're sitting on a horse and it's running away with you, if you let your emotions run away with you, Am I the emotions or the horse, you're the horse, but like just the bottom half. <laughs> gotcha. So, okay. Even in the analogy, I'm a bottom. <laughs> um, yeah, this is a realistic analogy. But mm -hmm. if you let the horse run away in any direction that they mm -hmm. might even want to go, that's not the direction you want to go, you're in trouble. You're kind of in deep shit. But the great thing is you're sitting on top of the horse. And if you know how to ride a horse, 
you can point the horse in the direction you want to go. You can actually get there a lot faster than if you didn't have a horse. Mm. And I think that really clicks with some people. And I think emotions are precisely the same. They can be really powerful motivators. I think that's what keeps us in love with chess. I think that's what makes us want to keep coming back. And if you know how to point them in the right direction, it's a really useful tool. Absolutely. And I, I, and as you're saying that, I'm thinking about how some of the games that I've played that I've been the most proud of are the ones where I was the most emotionally swept up in them. Yeah. And maybe it was like the emotion wasn't just fear or panic, but even sometimes maybe it was, right? I yeah. think something that we miss in these conversations is almost the difference between the arousal of an emotion and mm-hmm. the valence. So what I mean when I, I say that is when we experience any of those internal emotional states, first, they're going to have a level of arousal. A state of high nice. arousal could be something like excitement, fear, anger, mm-hmm. low arousal. You might feel lethargic, apathetic. You can think about what that range looks like. But the, the valence is really where we start to bring in more of that categorical component to how we think about emotion. So you can have high arousal have a positive valence or a negative valence. So we might say, oh, I'm really excited. Mm-hmm. We might also say, oh, I'm really scared. Mm-hmm. It actually could be a really similar feeling. So when we think about fear, we're thinking about that high state of arousal, that mm-hmm. anxiety, that sympathetic nervous response. Okay, we can call that fear. But if we do some of that labeling, mm-hmm. it could look really different. And again, one thing I do with some of my clients, when they're having a lot of fear and anxiety, around something that's really important to them, like what you just described, JJ, those Mm. exact chess games where you felt the most emotionally swept away. It's almost like, what if you just said to yourself, I'm really excited. (laughs) It sounds so lame, but Mm -hmm. language is powerful and it totally changes everything. That's that's what I was going to say is that even some of the ones where like, I remember being in fearful states, it's like to be able to like pause and be like, wait a minute, the fact that I'm afraid means at some level, I don't see exactly how things have gone wrong or are going to go wrong, right? Like if I yeah. see the if I see the checkmate in two, I'm not fearful, I'm disappointed, I'm defeated. Totally, I love that. And so to kind of be like, okay, cool. Like, yes, there's a problem here, but obviously there's a problem here. I am terrible at this game. But the fact that it's not clear where it's going is like, this is actually really fun. Like I'm very invested in this problem to solve or like in the state of things, there's still a lot that's undecided. I totally resonate with that. Um, And I think like in stepping back, it would be really fun to have more chess people talk this way. An idea Amelia had once is like, what if you like directed a tournament and then like after each game straight up gave everyone a feelings wheel? To like see where they are, where they were during the game, just as a sort of way to check in with themselves and maybe even something to talk to their opponent about as well, of like of how they're feeling. Where instead of having this kind of stoic ideal of I am unfeeling, I'm just playing moves, I am stockfish on level one. But <laughs> and and you know, I feel like there are some therapy approaches that would say that is appropriate at times. DBT is big on this, they call it wise mind where we have our logical mind and our emotional minds. Mm-hmm. And it really is about kind of figuring out when you want to center each of those. Um, so the wise mind can tap into both. And so we don't want to be totally unfeeling, especially when our emotions useful. Mm-hmm. Let's say you're at a wedding, you're dancing, you're falling in love. There's all these times where we want to be swept away in our emotions. Mm-hmm. You're watching a movie. You want to feel invested. You don't want to be thinking about it from this very pragmatic lens of, okay, I'm dancing. Left foot goes here, right foot goes here. And then there's going to be times where you want to be almost only logically minded. The example they always give, and I don't know how much I love this, but let's say you're taking an exam, you're taking the MCAT, whatever. But then for most of your life, you want this wise mind that kind of taps into both of those things. And Mm. I wonder where chess would kind of fall in that. I wonder if there are times where it would be helpful to be able to do emotional regulation and say, I'm in a really high state of arousal. That's not helping. But it's really interesting because also high states of arousal can actually make people perform better at things that they're really good at. So yeah, maybe it's like a know thyself. I'm not sure. Oh, I think you're onto something. I had some good thoughts about that. So I'm going to not share those and share the dumb one instead, which is <laughs> I actually think that different kinds of chess games, even different kinds of openings might themselves lend to different sorts of states where like an yeah. incredibly tactical open board, lots of pieces can capture each other and you have to be very precise. That might actually really benefit from the kind of logical mind, but but it also might benefit from, you know, having the kind of proper feeling for the position. But sometimes the feeling of the general sort of, oh, this looks like a good time for an attack. It's like, no, you have to calculate right now. 
but then there might be other more like uh closed board none of the pieces are touching there aren't a whole lot of variations you have to calculate where like that kind of logical mind isn't going to get you very far but like the more you're able to just be swept up in a certain sort of direction or rerouting or some sort of more poetic thing can really take you in a much much different direction and then I think something that's so frustrating this was the real thought is that throughout the game it really feels like we're switching between what you're calling this wise mind versus the logical mind versus like the feeling and sometimes it's like you really need to let the feeling sweep you away but then if you forget to calculate something you're fucked and other times it's like you really need to calculate and then when calculation runs out you need the feeling back This really made me think of something. I think that this is an example where everyone can start to realize how much that emotional part of their thinking creeps into their chess play. Everyone Mm. has been there. You're playing a game of chess and you miss a tactic or you blunder a piece and you just want to quit, right? You're like, oh, I just want to resign or I'm just not, I'm not into this anymore. And you stop looking for the best move or maybe you start playing more aggressively. Like, okay, Mm. well, now I'm going to make a sacrifice. Now I need to make up for it. The game is already lost. If you were able to really tap into just that logical, cognitive part of your mindset, what would you do differently? And I've had games like that. I had one recently. I almost tweeted about it because it was so funny to me, but I, I blundered my queen. And usually when I do that, sometimes I'll literally just resign. It's like, oh, I'd rather just start over. But right. for some reason on this day, I was like, well, let's just see if I can crawl my way back. If I have a good wiggle, I'll send it to JJ. It was such a funny experience. I played it totally differently than I would have even 10 minutes before that. And I came back and I won the game. And it was so funny to me. Like, why don't I just always do this? After that, I was actually very moved by my (laughs) incredible chess prowess, if you will. That for, I think, you know, the rest of that time that I was sitting playing chess, I was like, okay, I'm not going to resign any of my games, but I'm also going to just try to play like really kind of solidly, even when I feel like I'm losing. And it was a totally different experience. I actually won a lot of games that I probably would have just resigned. It was so funny to me. And I think who has not experienced that? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so if you can learn to to kind of regulate that response, I think that people will play better chess. I agree with that. And I think that's cool. And I'm looking forward to you teaching me how to do that. Um, I'm going to teach you emotional regulation. Okay. And the other piece of that puzzle is distress tolerance, right? I used to work with children and families. These are like the most basic skills. I play with the Benoni <laughs> and the Banco. So like my distress tolerance is, is high. It's That is fine. I don't have okay, that problem. JJ, I have not seen you play the Banco in a very long time. Well, it's because my distress tolerance hasn't been tested <laughs> recently. We need, we need more Banco. This podcast is actually sponsored by... The Banco. Big Banco is Banco. <laughs> uh, big Banco Gambit is really up to no good, but we needed the cash influx. So here we are. Yeah. I mean, like, I was really proud of us for turning down Rex Sinkfeld's generous offer. Oh, we were supposed to turn that down. I think I emailed back yes. Oh, man. Because, I mean, his generous offer was just like a portrait of himself. So, like, <laughs> I hope it's shipping to you. No, absolutely not. It's already okay. hanging up in your house. I talked to Amelia. We're putting the world's tallest chess piece in our backyard. <laughs> Is that true? No, but they, the, like, new Chess Life magazine was talking about how when Rex opened the St. Louis Chess Club, they wanted to have the world's tallest chess piece. And then someone else built a taller chess piece. And so they made theirs taller. Is it really that hard to do? This is my problem. I have the opposite of imposter syndrome. This is actually one of Michael's favorite jokes about me. I don't talk about this a lot because I'm in academia. And when you are in a PhD program, everyone always talks about imposter syndrome a lot. Um, I just don't have that. I, I really don't. So as soon as you're like, well, you just build a tall chess piece. I'm like, oh, I could do that. I could build a taller chess piece. than the St. Louis chess club, you just make it higher. Right. I, I'm with you on something like building a chess piece. It's like, yeah, how hard can that be? But I want to ask you a question about imposter syndrome. Oh, I would love, love, love to chat about this. You said that you usually don't have it. Do you feel like when it comes to chess or talking about chess, you haven't been playing a long time. So how do you feel about that? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I I don't feel like I necessarily have imposter syndrome. Good. 
I think I just have an accurate read on how bad I am at chess. And I think it's also okay to say like, I'm not that good at something. I'm actually not qualified. I agree with that. Yeah. To do a task. And it's not always imposter syndrome. Sometimes we're just not good at things. And I mean, I think something that's nice about that is, you know, it's it's not even a joke. It's not imposter syndrome. I'm just an imposter. It's you're not impostering anything. Exactly. I'm not trying to come into this space and be like, I am incredible at chess. I've been playing my whole life and I'm going to teach you how to also be good at chess. But I do love chess a lot. I mean, I, I really love it. And I feel like that is what brings everyone in the chess community together, right? We're all obsessed with this thing that is like kind of ruining our lives, which we can also talk about. Oh my God. Um, Yeah. I think I, I love when people are getting into chess and are tweeting early on about how much joy it's bringing them. (laughs) And it's just, you know, I pull out my popcorn and Uh. it's almost more just like, finally, welcome. You've arrived. Now that you understand what chess truly is, you can, you are one of us. I will be happy for your accomplishments, but it's only once you want to commiserate that you are truly in the club. Why is that, by the way, that we both love doing this to ourselves, but also love commiserating about it? Does it really make, even make us feel better to have people to commiserate yes. with? It does? Yeah. Being being validated feels good. Yeah. Okay. No, I get that about actual problems, right? If I'm having a real problem, I want people to validate me. But if I'm just inflicting chest suffering on myself. It's a real problem. My chest is a real problem. I agree with that. <laughs> Whenever I see your game, I'm like, wow, JJ has a lot of problems. Yeah. And this is something too. I was, I was curious when I was asking about imposter syndrome, because when I started teaching, As a strong amateur, but extremely amateur player, I definitely had some imposter syndrome as well, because, you know, a lot of grandmasters and other strong title players will supplement whatever tournament income or their entire income is from teaching. And I'm trying to do what they do. And these people would wipe the floor with me. Who am I to call myself a coach? And I'm not sure if imposter syndrome was the right word for it, but I think I think something else, and this is kind of talking about the uh, difference between fear or just excitement, is if anything that motivated me to figure out what is it about me and my interest in chess and my love for chess that can make me a good coach. And that's something that yeah. I think some strong players struggle with. I am very good at chess, and so you should pay me to help you be better at chess. And okay, but you know, what do you do? And I think that for some people, for, for a lot of people, I think they have incredibly good answers, but for some people, I'm not sure how much they've thought about what is it that makes me qualified to teach? Cause you'll see this in anything where like some of the best actors aren't some of the, always the best teachers. Well, of course. Yeah. And what is my pedagogy? I, I feel yeah. so strongly about this. And especially as someone coming into chess, kind of at that advanced beginner level where I wasn't totally new to chess, but I had never really actually studied chess right, before. Right. I met you really sorry (laughs) yeah jj has been ruining my life since 1991 when we met at the hospital we were born in the same hospital on the same day five months apart you had a lot of problems so they had to keep you there no you were born first you were the one with five months of problems you had so many problems i was just waiting for you me and your parents kind of exchanged a look. I was like, oh, God. And they were like, yeah. But they did keep you and me. We're actually step-siblings. With the same parents? Yeah, if you're step-siblings, you're raised in the same home. But I thought you were my grandmother. Okay, checkmate, JJ. You're totally right. And I concede the point to you. Back to what we were saying, which was, who makes the best teacher mm-hmm. for someone at that beginner level? Let's say you're coming in and you're a 1400. Mm-hmm. Is it the person with the most chess knowledge in their brain or is it the person who's the best teacher? And who makes the best teacher? Someone who knows how to teach. And you have such an incredible philosophy. You have such an incredible pedagogy. The way that you approach teaching is so impressive. And I've seen you teach other people. You've taught me. And I don't know. I feel very strongly about this. Will I learn more from Daniel Neroditsky, absolutely. He's also a better teacher than you. But will I learn more from, I don't know, from a GM? Yeah. Do they have more knowledge in their brain? Possibly. Can they transfer that knowledge to me in a way where I can actually use it? Honestly, probably not. Sometimes, but probably not. And I mean, yeah, just to be clear, I think there's lots of incredibly strong chess players who have 
dedicated themselves to becoming excellent teachers as well. And I'm not trying to knock those people. It's more the people who kind of assume I know this, therefore I can teach it. That is itself like a dangerous thing. And so it was this process for me of going through this opposite of like, do I know it well enough to teach it and being like, wait a minute, these are to a certain yeah. degree separate skills. And I think something else that's super interesting in pedagogy and it's related to you'll probably see this a lot in sports. You see this definitely in academia where a lot of people who are very good at what they do just teach the way they were learned, the way that they were taught. And no, not the way they were learned. They, the way they were learned. <laughs> I'm going to edit out me saying that and not you saying that. <laughs> don't, please, please don't do that. I will not do that. I'm not going to edit shit. But then what's so funny is a lot of people also have a lot of pain and suffering and how they were taught, whether yeah. it was be just because their teaching was bad or because, you know, if they had to solve really hard problems or they were ran ragged or their advisors were kind of abusive, they're just like, well, I came out okay. And almost as a way to kind of justify being treated poorly, they just do the same. And so you have, you see this thing where it's just, there's this kind of like, especially in chess teaching, this very cold, cruel, you solve, you get wrong, you feel bad. Um, approach yeah. that I see this like so common from people who outside of chess seem incredibly lovely. And it's just, oh, you were taught, you were taught this way by someone who was taught this way by someone who was taught this way. Yeah. That's that, that now that's your pedagogy unreflectively. And that's just so sad. How would you describe the way you were taught chess, JJ? When did you start and what was that experience like for you? It was super weird because I had a teacher in middle school who was a very strong player around 2000 strength and he had a chess club and I kind of at the time felt like because I knew people who had private lessons and I didn't that I didn't really have a teacher but he was somebody who was um very classically well versed in chess and I realized later how many classic games he would show us every week there are these little lessons and there's so much stuff and also something about him that I think was really special Besides like how much work Martin Roper, if you're listening, if you're out there, besides drive us hours to tournaments all over North Carolina was um, he himself was a, he was an English teacher. He was not a science person. And so the, the games came with stories. The games came with um, color. I mean, and probably more than when he taught literature, when he taught English to us. <laughs> Can you, I'm going to put you on the spot today. Yeah. Can you name one book that you read and you learned in his class? I know, well, I know it's a play, not a book, but I know that we did Midsummer Night's Dream because my group acted out a scene and we decided to all do it in drag. Incredible. This was he sounds like a really, he sounds like a really good English teacher as well. Oh, no, he didn't case. like decide this. Our group decided this and didn't tell him and we just showed up like this. But he gave you, he gave you the freedom and an A, presumably. Well, he gave me an A because we won states that year. But um <laughs> oh yeah, just slipping that little flex. You're like when I was the captain of the team and we won states. Oh, um, I wasn't the captain, but we won states. Is there a captain? I was just kidding. I'm not sure. I don't I wasn't I definitely wasn't the best player on the team in middle school. I feel like I'm the captain of this podcast. That's definitely true. Um I'm whichever one goes down with the ship. Is that the admiral? I think that's also the captain. Okay, then that's even better. <laughs> I'll be the captain and you can be the assistant to the captain. I want to be the stewardess. <laughs> okay, uh, please continue telling me about your teacher. Yeah, no, I was just thinking about how it was just this very colorful thing where it was, was never memorization based. It was never boring in a yeah. way. And I think it was very special to have somebody who had so much knowledge, but just was very invested in seeing how it fit together in this way, like you said, that had a narrative. And I think that's very much informed the way I like to think about chess, because as hard as it is to turn a board game into something that has a narrative, once you get there and start doing that, it's much easier to keep track of a narrative than it is to keep track of a bunch of variations. Yeah. I love that. And, and that's and that's something that I think it, it's also just more fun. And it also makes it easier to lose because it can still be very interesting in a way that if you're only there for the results, half your games are just going to make you sad. But I don't know, tragedies rule. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I think there's also, uh, I feel like this is not something that people would necessarily think of first when they say, what am I looking for in a mentor, a chess coach, but someone who so clearly loves chess that's so contagious when someone else is excited about it and I feel like you and I are very similar in that way yeah <laughs> we both love a good game of chess lights us up 
to yeah to a degree that like often upsets those around us I can't even think of anyone (laughs) yeah that's gonna be that's gonna be a future conversations it's like uh chess chess as the other woman in the relationship yeah but I'm actually really glad that Michael thinks that chess at large is kind of the other woman Mm. when it's really just Daniel Mm Narodinsky. But I'm willing to let him think it's the whole community and the game itself. Absolutely. Um, Daniel Narodinsky, if you are listening, this is going to be a segment we have every week where we invite (laughs) Daniel Narodinsky onto the podcast and out to dinner with Julia. Daniel, we would love to interview you about your experience, you know, learning and playing chess. And also, if you're ever in Ann Arbor, I will buy you a latte. To be clear, that offer is only good for Daniel Narodinsky. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Where were we? Oh yeah, chess causing problems. Yeah, so we talked about psychology and what that means, which by the way, was also my trap to get you to talk about your credentials for doing this podcast. I didn't give any credentials. I, I mean, cred- I mean, or just like you, you showed your chops maybe is like what I was looking for. In, in oh the yeah, things you that's said. nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Your chops are not nothing. Oh, yeah, but our, our discussion was nothing. Oh, yeah. It yeah, is yeah. my favorite thing to talk about. I really could talk about this for as many hours as you want at mm-hmm. length. So whenever people ask me, what's your research? I mm-hmm. really have to do a deep pause and and ask myself, what is this person really asking? Does this person <laughs> want to hear about my research or are they being nice to me? But I'm glad I got to chat about it a little bit. I'm looking forward to deeper conversations and as a chess player your ability to judge social cues is one of your strongest (laughs) is that that something that chess players are notoriously not good at no chess players are known for their social grace and acumen that's why they (laughs) tend to gather in silent rooms see i didn't grow up playing chess so everyone i know who plays chess they're my favorite people you've been on the internet though I know, but I don't know how good their social prowess is. The The internet, you can hide that. Okay, some people are not hiding that. I was going to say, I need to see the empirical research on that. <laughs> can you tell how socially awkward someone would be in person by how they are on the internet? Yes. I feel like I would come off as relatively awkward. I feel like my worst habit is that I'll make like an inside joke. I'll say something that I know only you will understand, but <laughs> on someone else's post... And that's actually, that's kind of socially awkward. I, I should stop doing that. It is. That reminds me of my college radio station. We like to play a lot of like difficult or abrasive music. And there is a sign in the control room that just said, help the listeners get what's coming to them. And that's kind of how <laughs> yeah. I view Twitter too, where it's like, no one made you be here, but I'm not going to cater to you just because you're here. Yeah. And and sometimes I feel like I like step in muddy water. I remember, JJ, I made some joke to you about like I hate the Benoni the Benko is even worse and someone's like oh like this is what the Benko is and I had to backtrack and say oh no I I play the Benko I love the Benko I'm just making fun of JJ so yeah I mean it's wild that people use Twitter and don't realize that its entire purpose is to make fun of me that is basically how I use it we're giving away too many of our, our Twitter secrets. We need to save some of this for when we have Nigel Short, Gary Kasparov, and Nigel Davies on for the Twitter episode. Oh, I can't wait for that. And they all said yes already, right? Um, No, I'm not going to make that joke. Yes, they all said yes. <laughs> oh, please make the joke, JJ. You please. already know the joke. I'm not going to make the joke. <laughs> it's like, why, why would I make a mess when I'm the one who has to clean it up? <laughs> I love it when you clean up your own messes. Okay, so I was going to say, I feel like this is a really good first recording for us. But then I had to filter myself because I know you didn't want to say the first podcast. Look, I mean, this is going to be the first thing we release. It's just like, I don't think this can be the first episode. Okay, right. The first episode. Like Because it just feels wrong to come in there and be like, this is what we're going to talk about. That's the first episode. Have you ever written an introduction before in your life? You show, you don't tell. We can't have an episode about what the episodes are going to be. Man, that is so not true in academia. <laughs> Literally, the intro is, here's what I'm going to tell you. And then the paper is like, like now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. And then the conclusion is like, here's what I've just told you. That's why this is a podcast. Yes, yes. And it's, I, I don't know, as an academia 
has been dropout. I, like, I want everyone to know our mission statement and stuff, but I'm very down to talk about this and explore this. It's just, I want the first episode to be, I don't know, like a meteor S. I want, I want, I want it to speak for itself. I want it to be a banger. Right. I'm not saying that this lacks bangability. I'm just saying that it's a different conversation than I think something that could be called the first episode. So I don't want to call this the first episode. Yeah. I definitely understand your line of reasoning, but I do think if anyone is listening to this, that in the comments, I don't know if podcasts have comments. I think if you just like are listening and you start talking out loud, we pick it up. <laughs> yeah. And when you do that, if you could please comment on the bangability mm -hmm. of me and JJ individually, but also mm -hmm. as as a group. Please. Yeah. Please. And again, to clarify, that <laughs> offer is for Daniel Naritsky only. Daniel, don't listen to JJ. I really would like to explain my crush on Daniel Naroditsky. Yeah. Because like to Daniel Naroditsky? No, specifically to everyone besides Daniel Naroditsky. So everyone besides Daniel Naroditsky, keep listening. If you are Daniel Naroditsky, just scroll. We'll pause for three seconds for you to pause the video, Daniel. <laughs> Continue. Um, because I feel like people find this baffling. I'm baffled by the people who are baffled. But mm -hmm. I remember being out to dinner one night with some non-chess friends. And they were kind of asking me, you know, you've been really into this for a while. What got you into chess? Mm -hmm. And I had to think about it. And I realized that one day in the fall of 2020, I randomly had a YouTube suggestion, which was one of Daniel's earlier videos he played like a lower rated player and it was kind of mm. like, how does a, how does a grandmaster beat a club player? And he explained it. And so I showed them the video because I thought if I show them, then they'll understand why I got hooked on chess immediately. And they were all like, this guy? <laughs> I was like, no, I mean, I know he's not like a supermodel, but it's attractive. And they were looking at me like I had three heads. Which is, you know, as much as I want to make fun of you for this, I mean, I can't make fun of you more than you just said roast yourself there. But it's also, <laughs> but, it, but people being good at things and good at explaining the things they're doing is attractive. And that's, yes. that's something that most people agree with. And so it's so weird that when it comes to chess, a lot of people are kind of baffled by that. Even if you're not good at chess or care about chess, you understand that like people find Larry David hot now. I don't think that's true, JJ. I think you, you tell like, yourself that. I'm like making, <laughs> I, I, go on people might be named jj but weren't you the one who sent me that jennifer lawrence quote about larry david making it hot to be bald oh yeah big time oh yeah i was like pulling that in for you because you i'd get yeah jj and i were on the phone last night and we did agree on this but yeah i definitely think there's something to that and i think that's why people do love danya's twitch stream and his youtube channel when he teaches and if we're going kind of back to what we were saying like what makes someone a good chess coach a good chess teacher mm -hmm. whatever that is he definitely has it he loves chess kind of unironically. He's really excited about it. He'll be playing and you see him light up and he'll be like, oh yeah, this line, I played this once in a game eight years ago. And then later he'll pull up some game that he played or that someone in the 1920s played. And there is something so infectious about that. Absolutely. It's so weird when people don't seem to be infected by that. So I guess like the last question I wanted to ask you as a a clinical psychologist for people who don't find that infectious or at the very least charming what is wrong with them <laughs> this is i assume how psychology is done right oh yes this is how every session goes yep exactly somebody walks into the room offends you in some way and you proceed to tell them why <laughs> their brain is broken yeah 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 so for people who are not infected by tests i mean one no no ethics i mean it's a moral failing correct but it's also a personality problem. Okay. So is it just the, is it the lack of taste or does it go deeper? Yes. Agreed. Okay. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> it's, it's a character flaw. It's an intelligence deficit. Okay. And... I'm going to, I'm going to have to jump in there. Okay. You know <laughs> what? You've talked to enough chess players to know that chess and intelligence have nothing to do with each other. Oh yeah. We can definitely talk about this at length. Yeah. Well, they don't have nothing to do with each other. They have nothing to do. No, they do not have zero to do with each other. But 
when I hear people want to talk about IQ or talk about intelligence, let's define our terms. Or we can just go full on and do eugenics, like what, like phrenology, like what, <laughs> what head shape should you have if you're going to play yeah. open games? But what is intelligence? And this is actually relatively poorly defined in the field, but it's so egregiously used in popular culture in the media. So when people try to talk about correlations between chess and intelligence, I always do want to dive into that. Great. What's intelligence? What I'm hearing is that the highest rated chess players have the biggest IQs. Is that what you're saying? It took so much to filter the joke that you were baiting me to make. Uh Yes. But to answer your question, do they have the highest intelligence? What is intelligence? How would you measure that? So if you're asking me, do they have the highest IQ? If, If you think that IQ is a valid and reliable way of testing what we think of as, you know, quote unquote intelligence, I, I firmly disagree. I feel bad for you, son. But I'm actually sure that there probably might be some correlation. But why would that correlation exist? Who scores high on IQ tests? Those might be the same people who have access to things like a chess coach, who have an education. Yeah, It's like when people try and argue that there's some sort of biological justification for why men are better at chess because there are proven biological differences, such as slight difference in rapid eye movement between men and women on average. And it's like, ah, yes. So the difference between social positions and men and women in the hunter-gatherer era perfectly tracks why women just can't understand the complexities of the Berlin defense. That is exactly the sort of thing that's just biologically encoded. Yeah. So first off, we would have to have a long conversation about what is intelligence? How do you define it? Then how do you operationalize intelligence? How do you measure that in a reliable, valid way? People can't even begin to answer those questions. But also we have to have a conversation about the difference between correlation and causation. If we want to think about do these things map onto each other. So, man, that should be a whole episode. Do you think there is more correlation between intelligence loosely defined and chess playing or intelligence loosely defined and trolling on Twitter. We would also need to operationalize the term trolling on Twitter before I would feel comfortable answering that question. Introducing our next guest, Anish Giri. <laughs> oh, I wish that would be awesome. Anish, if you're listening, you already want to be on. You know what to do. DMs are open. Yeah. If you come to Ann Arbor, though, I can't buy you a coffee because I, I want to keep that exclusive for Daniel Narodisky. If you come to Nebraska, Anish, I will apologize personally. <laughs> on behalf of Nebraska. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, that will also be, I think, a good topic for us to discuss in the future is the trolling culture of chess. I I feel like there there really has become this very strong focus on self-deprecation of Mm. like, oh, I suck so much. I blunder a game. I don't study. Those jokes are funny, but I feel like we've seen those jokes a lot. I'm ready for a new wave where people are like, I'm sick at chess, but it's just never true. <laughs> so Yeah. Oh, oh, almost like appropriation of not like bragging, but supposed to take pride in your accomplishments, like ironic appropriation of that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really yeah, into so, that. <laughs> this is why recently I just posted me meeting somebody in seven moves playing the Benoni. I was actually just going to send it to you. And then I was like, you know what? Let's just let the masses see what I can really do when someone blunders mate in one. Yeah, I think like you really showed your mastery of 200 level <laughs> tactics there. And, and yeah, 200. Yeah, that literally is like a 200, isn't it? Probably. <laughs> I mean, all your moves were good. You, I mean, you, you didn't really have a better option there than mate in one. It just, well, a few moves prior, there was a tactic that I missed. Nice. Um, oh, good. I'm glad that that, that makes it even better. Is I think what's, I, I think though, I feel like my timeline is full of people bragging about their wins or like showing their results of just rando pretty fast games or something. And so it's this weird thing where it's like the earnest self-deprecation and the trolling self-deprecation. And then there's earnest bragging. Yeah. I think troll bragging is the future. <laughs> the the earnest self-deprecation actually really does touch me because it's so rare that I feel that people are vulnerable in that way. I see people post games where they're like, oh man, Blunder City, and then they play a really tight game. Are you talking about, sort of, me? You're talking no, about me? No, no, I'm not talking about you. I feel like you only send me games where you're like, want to see a dead body. <laughs> I mean, that is my favorite way to introduce a chess game. But no, something that I've heard you complain about before is like when I am like, man, I suck at this game. And you're like, if you suck at this game, what am I? And I'm like, I don't care what you are. 
but I feel like a lot of players <laughs> who are strong at chess relative to some standard are also very sensitive to how much they're lacking. And that is earnest self-deprecation. And even if it comes off as ironic. And when we have those conversations, JJ, who is objectively correct, because I did a Twitter poll to measure mm -hmm. this. And if we go back to those results, mm -hmm. I, I feel like one of us was totally right. And then the other one was embarrassingly wrong. The tyranny of the majority sided with Julia yeah. on this one. <laughs> but that might have to do with sample size. The kinds of people who would follow and engage with her posts might not be those appreciate look when i but uh, but look i've said this before when i say i suck at chess i don't mean that like my understanding is zero i mean like the amount of games i play where i'm like why did i do that i know better seems to be much higher than the frequency that people around my strength or of understanding play their games and so like why am i so bad at like getting through a game without doing something i know better than i suck at that what if we paused on that, JJ, and didn't treat it like a rhetorical question of why do I do that, but actually thought about it? Why do you do that? Why do you do that? Why do I do that? Probably because I was super undisciplined when I started playing, just and can never kind of became the most disciplined in anything and kind of let, enjoy letting my mind wander onto stuff. And then impulse control plus that equals there. And I can admonish myself for that, but I don't know if I've ever fully done the hard work that I even preach sometimes of actually getting a sort of not quite checklist, but just a sort of pattern right, that wouldn't do it. But then, but then the other part is the impulse control of, you know, like pots or sees check, pots or plays check. It's like, I see... I see a good move and then I can't help but notice that I've already played it. That's a good answer. Are you going to stop me from doing that? You're not the kind of, of like brain person who just gives out drugs, right? <laughs> I am legally not able to give out drugs if that helps. Legally. That okay, I'm cool. Cool. Not that type of person. Legally. Correct. Cool. Correct. Okay, cool. This is going to be a fun bonus episode. But as a true expert on self-control and inhibition, those are some of my specialties. I'll try to, I'll try to show you the way. I really want that to be my character podcast. Just like <laughs> I am disciplined. And I, I have a lot of self-control. Famous, famous Julia traits. The number of times I've seen her restrain herself from just pushing her off pawn is just <laughs> admirable. If it's not a blunder, I'm going to do it. And if it's a blunder? And if it's a blunder, I am sometimes going to absolutely do it. Hell yeah. It just feels so good. Am I trying to win a game of chess or am I trying to feel good? It's, it's not a stupid question. It feels good to do bad things. I just want to do hood rat stuff with my friends. And on that note, <laughs> I think that's also like a genuine problem I have is as somebody who is sucked in by narratives or just pleasing things or in general kind of finds beauty in the madness and the chaos in the world. It's very yes. hard to not go into the really complicated, horrifying messes of variations. Partially it's an impulse I need to control in the sense of were there clean alternatives that I'm ignoring? But partially it's like, do I want to control this impulse? Because ultimately, if that's really the game I enjoy playing, it might not have the highest win rate. But like we were saying earlier, you know, like this hyper-focus on, comp on competition or the results there, it's just maybe it's even wrong to just say that you just need impulse control. I'm not saying you were saying this, but just maybe it's wrong for me to think I just need impulse control. And it's like, no. If I'm clear with myself that this is what I want more than I want to win this game, that might not be a bad thing. Which brings us to our potentially best future podcast sections of adult non-improvers. Yes. So enemy of the podcast, Ben Johnson, <laughs> invented the idea of adult improvement. Did he really coin that term? In 1923. <laughs> he is so old. When he was still a prisoner of war in post-World War Austria. And there he had this idea that even though children are genetically superior at learning chess, adults could do it too. And the problem that that has led to is he has since then made it illegal to enjoy playing chess without trying to improve. But there is an underground network of adults who just enjoy playing chess. And they have to do so in shame and secrecy because of the watchful eye of Ben Johnson. <laughs> and they all literally meet at a bar in Nebraska where JJ frequents. Oh, bless their hearts. And if you want any insight into how JJ treats me, he calls them the Julias. I'm probably going to edit this part out because at least one of them might listen. <laughs> no, you totally can. <laughs> but it was a solid roast. I'm just like a happy 
lifelong 1400. You used to be a happy 1400. No, but seriously, all love for, for Ben Johnson for perpetual chess. But a lot of people who are adults do struggle with making sense of how to find the time and how to improve in part because a lot of material or experience and pedagogy on chess is geared towards children or those with unlimited time or seemingly unlimited resources. But they're also like for those of us who play tournaments, like we're probably see the people who are there every week or every month who are very happy to be there whose ratings haven't really changed that much. And they seem to care about the results, of course, but they don't necessarily seem particularly interested in doing anything drastic to change or like they're not, they don't drop out after a few months of not improving or something. And some of them, you know, they just think they're doing everything right and can't figure out what's going on. But a lot of them, I think, are kind of accepted that they're here to play chess, not to become world champion one day. And I just think there's something really cool about the people who are there for reasons other than first and foremost, getting really good, really fast, especially the people who like would prioritize playing a fun game of chess above maximizing the efficiency of their study plan, because that's a very wonderful kind of personality that doesn't get a lot of respect in this, like a hyper competitive, hyper improvement oriented culture. And we want to have you people on an episode of our podcast. Absolutely. And I we would love to hear, we, we would love for you, you know, just to show the world what makes you tick, even when you don't have a three point rating gain over the last 50 tournament games to show off. As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest. Where two plus two equals five, and the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you. Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia. We would be truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review. And tell all of your friends. (laughs) Yeah, all of them. And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a five-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership to leechess.org. Unlocking all of their features. Even that? Especially that. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ChessFuelsPod. Oh, and if you didn't like what you heard, do not hesitate to message any feedback. No matter how critical or scathing. Directly to Mr. Dodgy, our social media manager, even though he doesn't know it, at (laughs) ChessProblem.